Urbit as a thing, right, is sort of saying, look, the internet is hosed. This territory isn't interesting anyway. We're just going to create an entirely new territory that we think has like rules that actually make sense. And we're going to let people explore it and develop it. That's both fun like for us. And the idea is to make it fun for other people too. All right, everybody, what's going on? This is the Other Life Podcast. I am Justin Murphy. This episode is one in a whole series all about Urbit. Urbit is a whole new computing and networking paradigm that many of you know I've become very interested in in recent months, really recent years, the past couple of years or so. I think Urbit is just way crazier and way cooler than most people realize. I think a lot of people are sleeping on Urbit and just don't really know about what's going on with it, what it is, and all the cool badass people building Urbit, building things on Urbit, creating on Urbit. And so now the development of the technology is really picking up and moving faster. I decided that when the Urbit annual conference came to town in Austin this past October, that I would sit down with 10 different people all across the network, people who are building the technology, people who are creating on the network, and people just in this culture that still I think a lot of people don't know much about. So I can honestly say this was one of the most interesting experiences I ever had at any kind of conference, to be perfectly honest. I spoke with CEOs. I spoke with engineers. I spoke with e-girls from weird theory Twitter. Like I'm not talking about Instagram chicks. I'm talking about like weird theory girls in, you know, the other life neck of the woods of, of the, the Twitter verse and the blogosphere. I talked with skitzed out writers and post everything podcasters. And very possibly I spoke even with an alien I'm only half kidding. It was just wild, man. It was really, really wild. A really, really interesting set of characters you're about to meet over the next 10 episodes. And I'm just super pumped to bring this series out into the world. So real quick, before I forget, I do want to let you know if you're interested in Urbit, it's now easier than ever to get onto the network. So I actually have a bunch of Urbit planets, aka Urbit ships, pretty much uh, computers in the cloud, an individual computer in the cloud that can be yours. It's also functions as your identity and it's what you use to log onto the network and to use Urbit. So if you want to, I'll give you one. Uh, I have a bunch and any listener of the show, I want to get you on Urbit. So um, you can just go to imperceptible.computer. I made a whole site just for this purpose and yeah, drop your email and uh, I will get you a planet, aka an Urbit ship. All right. Um, depending on whether you're listening to this now or two years from now, uh, there may or may not be some kind of uh, modest fee associated with it. Uh, right now, I'm just giving them out for free. You don't need to have any coding or programming skills or experience whatsoever. It's very straightforward. I will give you your own planet and you'll be on the network playing around talking to people in five minutes, probably. Okay. That's imperceptible.computer. I will put a link in the show notes. And the final, final thing real quick, and then we'll get on to the show. This whole series was a labor of love. It was my idea. No one paid me to do it. I did, however, find eventually sponsors uh, so that it wasn't at all done at a loss. And uh, I'm very grateful to those sponsors. So this episode in particular is sponsored by the Dalton Collective. Dalton is the name of the first collectively owned and managed Urbit star. It's a membership organization run on Urbit, of course, that's focused on fellowship, sustainability, and sovereignty. Dalton, it's a small group. It's a private group. They're not advertising because they want to build their membership massively or anything like that. Uh, it's a small private group, but they do have a public channel. So uh, listeners of the podcast might want to go check out what they're up to, say hi to them. And you know, if you're interested in those values, as am I, then you might find the Dalton Collective interesting. And they're one of the earliest groups really kind of building community on Urbit. So shout out to them. Big thanks to the Dalton Collective for sponsoring this episode. And I'll, I will put a link in the show notes to the Dalton Collective. All right. That's all from me. Let me get out of the way and on to the show. 
So the first question I want to ask you about has to do with the preponderance of designers in the Urbit ecosystem. Because Urbit is such a technical project. It's, it's extremely technical. Yeah. It's confusing even to some of the most technically minded engineers. Yeah. And yet it seems to be run by a bunch of designers. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know you you are an architect. <laughs> That's a good question. I know your background is as yeah. an architect. Yeah. Um, and I know you're technically sophisticated, but I would think of you today mostly as a designer. People yeah. like Ed, who did the podcast this morning. Yeah. It's a lot of designers. Yeah. And so I just, <laughs> I think it's kind of unique. It's unique among highly technical technology companies to have so many designers yeah. uh, per per capita relative to the engineers. Like I would yeah. imagine the CEO of a, com- of a company such as Talon, the main company driving Urbit up until yeah. recently, would be an engineer. Yeah. So what's up with the culture of, of designers steering this highly technical yeah. technology ship? How does that work? Is, was that a strategic decision? Was it an accident? Is it an advantage or a disadvantage? Just talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. This is pretty easy to dig into. Okay. And there's all kinds of like other rabbit holes going on. So I mean, Urbit is a design project, I think, like even as a technical project, um, a lot of the things that like people bounce off of and find confusing about it technically, I think of as being almost like aesthetic decisions about how something should be. And I don't mean that like they're fussy or it's like overthought. Actually, it's like it's designed in a particular way to have a particular function, um, which I wish I had an easy way to communicate to people who are in the process of bouncing off of Urbit, right? Like when you look at something often, or you see people looking at Urbit and thinking, oh, this is so strange. And it's like, well, usually the thing you're finding strange, you know, more often than not, it used to be that sometimes you're finding something strange that's actually maybe unfinished. So this is one of the worst things. Here's a good rabbit hole. Okay. Like one of the things that was really tough about Urbit, I think for a long time was it was just unfinished. So it's like a design project from the start. You want to build this completely new platform and it's sort of well-reasoned as a whole thing, but there are many parts of it, of it that are unfinished. So people would dive into it and then get lost thinking like, wait, okay, is this supposed to be like this? Or is it something that you haven't quite figured out yet? That's like deeply annoying and confusing. And I empathize with people <laughs> who got lost in those weeds. Um, but yeah, I think that like, the, anyway, to answer the high level question, to start with like the, the rationale behind, you know, why does this attract design people in general? I do think that, you know, Urbit as a thing comes out of like is built or, or kind of grows out of this basic intuition that like some other type of technology for network computing is possible. And that's a design, like that's a design project in its spirit, right? Like that's how design works, right? You have this sense that something can be made and then you go figure out how to make that thing. Um, and so I think that yeah, I always have this conflict um, between about actually about calling myself a designer because it sounds like you're a graphic designer. And I always yeah, kind of feel spiritually like what I do is much more, much closer to architecture. And actually, I think that that's what I liked about Urbit originally. And actually, that's what I liked about working with Curtis. I think Curtis, uh, and we can go down this rabbit hole if you want. But yeah, I think Curtis as like a software architect is very brilliant. And we had a good time working together on basically making architectural decisions about like what Urbit is technically and what its motivation is in terms of how it can be used. Um, so yeah, I think that that kind of being in the DNA of Urbit technically is what attracts, I mean, Ed in many ways is, yeah, more of like a visual designer, but there's, you know, the reason that Urbit is built the way that it is as a piece of software is so that it can be used in a certain way. And right. those, so those two pieces like have to be very tightly connected. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's sort of like natural. I think that, I mean, one way to think about it really, and this was very on the table between Curtis and I was mm. like, 
I think Curtis had this intuition for something as possible technically and knew that ultimately the point of building this new simpler system was to make it usable or useful or directly materially like understandable by people. But I think he also knew he couldn't do that. And so that was kind of the like original partnerships. I'm like, well, that's what I want to work on. And like, I know that like that's a very significant design project of the type that I'm like qualified to take on. Um, so Okay. I mean, many, many great like works of technology have sure. this kind of, you know, two halves, right? Sure. So maybe that's a nice segue to learn a little bit more about the origin story. You know, how did you meet yeah. Curtis? Yeah. How did you first get involved? Yeah. Take us back to the early days. Yeah. Um, I like, they're not that interesting. In <laughs> yeah, some sure. ways. Uh, I found Urban on Hacker News. Yeah. I think that's like a well-known story. Um, I, yeah, like I had studied architecture and I was interested in kind of like the way I see it, like the history of civilization is kind of written in like the plan drawing of, of ancient cities or something, right? If you look at the way the city changes, you can see the way that culture shifts in the things that people made and how they made them. Cities and the way that they are built, like, I mean, just the discipline of architecture at, in terms of building buildings, especially for me anyway, in school is like not that interesting because it's been sort of very systematized. So the way that we live in the physical world, like this is a great example, right? This is like, we could be anywhere in a way, right? <laughs> yeah. now, right? Like, um, and that's fine. I mean, maybe it's a problem, but who, who cares, right? Like computers actually organize the way that we think. Um, getting, okay. <laughs> getting the camera line of sight, you're good though. Oh, okay. Um, and so, yeah, so I think computers organize the way we think, they organize the way that we are sort of like form communities, the way that we, you know, the way that culture works, totally. right? Um, so I was thinking a lot about, like I was primed to think about that stuff by the way that I came, like by the time I came out of architecture school and I was looking at every possible, basically alternative to the way that centralized software or like just conventional software was being built. Because I guess my take was like, this shit is not gonna last. Like there's mm. just no way even giant, you know, Facebook, Google, whatever, the way that this works, like, doesn't look like something that you would, like, let's fast forward 100 years, 200 years, 500 years. Um, is it likely that you would look back at, like, the empire of Google or the empire of Facebook as, like, a cultural relic and think, like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Of course, like, the empire of Google lasted hundreds of years. Like, no, like, it's weird. Like, it's a little kingdom and, like, that's cool, but it's fragile and, and it doesn't right. seem like realistic. Not built to last. Yeah, not at all. So like, you were already thinking about these things. So that's where my mind was. And I was looking at every possible. So yeah, like I was looking at Bitcoin, looking at every, and I grew up around a lot of cypherpunk. So I was interested in basically anything that had, that you could run yourself and then trying to figure out how you could bridge these things that you could run yourself that, you know, were potentially very durable, very secure, and just seemed like more, a more like natural way to compute. And were you a practicing architect or you just came out of no, architecture no. school? Yeah. So I went to architecture school, but I went to an unusual architecture school that's sort of like grounded in like hand drawing and making things in the physical world um, and kind of like a Beaux-Artsy. Uh, it's like a very disciplined place that's not a lot of people don't leave there and go and do actual architecture. So by the time I was done with school, there was I was pretty sure I was not going to be building buildings. And you were more interested in software. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I grew up building software. I grew up near Silicon Valley, kind of close enough to get it. Um, 
And so, yeah, this was all clear to me by the end of school. And then I was just kind of like looking at every possible thing. And then one morning you open up Hacker News. I mean, it was literally like I I was looking at a bunch of other stuff and thinking, okay, could you take this and productize it in a way where you could make a really great product that would be an alternative to some centralized thing that would actually be better than the centralized thing? And yeah, I found, I think it was really, the thing that was super attractive to me about Urbit in like 2013 when I first found it is that it was like five, 10 minutes and I could be using the thing and playing with it and it actually worked really well. And if you were familiar with the problems it was solving, like running its own network, letting you actually run code over the network, those were things that, I mean, there's a lot that was broken about Urbit in 2013 or it's like very prototype grade, but it's super impressive. You're like, holy shit, this is like, someone has gone like way beyond what anyone else is doing and has thought like more deeply about these things. So yeah, I just like, I think I went to the first talk that Curtis, like the one of the only Urbit talks that was just like a lightning talk. Um, and yeah, I knew nothing else about Curtis, um, which is probably part of why it worked, right? Like we personally got along really well. And I thought I, yeah, I, I knew based on my own experience, basically like this is someone who's like a very talented software architect. Uh, and we had just like really complementary skill sets um, and could also, uh, like productively fight with each other. Um, I think, yeah, we're both people who are kind of like, look, you should be able to ask any question. And like, it's the way to sort of work out the answer to something is like get in the ring and figure it out. Right. Um, so it was very quickly like, yeah, like a super productive collaboration basically. Okay. Right on. Fascinating. And so, I mean, while we're talking about you initially meeting Curtis and getting involved, now would probably be a good time to ask a little bit about how it's been navigating Tlon with Curtis and then without Curtis, with yeah. Curtis being such a controversial figure. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. maybe tell us the story about, I mean, obviously for a while, Curtis was somewhat radioactive, I think less so now yeah. for his controversial writings and, and ideas. And, you know, he's, a, he's a, a fascinating thinker who, you know, thinks in many different directions and doesn't really hold himself back in any way. And in today's day and age, it's very hard to have someone at the front of a company who's like that. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. How, what was that like? Uh, tell us how what kinds of challenges did you face yeah. from that, from that fact? Yeah. And how was it, how, how did you end up steering through that? Yeah. It's a lot. I mean, there's like, it's a long history, right? There's a lot that happened there. So yeah, like I said, I didn't know anything about, I mean, I think I'd like Google Curtis, you know, like I read some of the early, I remember, I do remember reading, I remember reading some of the early, like kind of econ, more economics focus, like Googled, found the blog, read like an economics poster too. And it's like, okay, this is kind of interesting these, why are these so long? Like, yeah. like, I was just like, I'm not reading this, like get this guy an editor, you know, like I'm not. And I already knew, I think this was maybe the like theme of like the early controversy surrounding Urbit is that, yeah, my sort of direct experience with this person is like a very friendly, uh, very like open-minded and, and actually like somewhat um, uncertain of the things that he was being trashed for. Um, I was like, you know, I don't know. Like it doesn't really yeah. line up like with my experience and, uh, and, but certainly, yeah, with, with regards to like, how is this going to affect the future of this thing? Um, I, for me, it was sort of like, I don't know, but like this thing seems good. Like it seems good. I feel and, like there's kind of two types of people. There are people who make their judgments about other people primarily through their personal contact. And it's like, I, I'm definitely that kind of person also. It's like, if I know someone and I've been working with someone, even 
slightly or tangentially for a little bit of time, but I've had enough repeated interactions with them that I have a mental model of who they are. Yeah. And that mental model is not bad or sinister in any, yeah, yeah, in any yeah. particularly profound way. And yeah. there's basically nothing I could read in the newspapers that's ever going to yeah. like change my basic mental model of them basically. Yeah. And on the other hand, there are other people who are like, if they find one negative thing in the newspaper, they'll like throw in the dustbin their entire kind of uh, experienced memory of you yeah. because that's just a, a certain type of personality that, that well, can't handle that. I think it's stressful. Like it's hard to sort of like tease apart like a story that is getting a lot of traction from like, yeah, the, from reality. I think there's probably, I mean, look, Curtis and I are actually very different and think very differently about things. So I think that the crux of it was that Maybe two things. A, that like those us hashing out those differences are generally a lot of fun and super engaging, super spirited and was kind of created even at the company in the early days, which was tiny, you know, it's like five people or so. There's like this culture of like, look, you need to reason from first principles. Like you may believe something and you might be able to think you can defend it. But if you can't actually like thread the needle from like, you know, very foundational principles all the way through to how you want to implement something like we're not even going to entertain, you know, right. uh, 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 you know, we're not going to, it doesn't matter basically. Um, and it's also like, we're pretty, and yeah, we're an engineering or design, you know, we, we make stuff. So at the end of the day, I think that was, that's a good, that's an important part of a culture of people who are making things right. Like either it works or it doesn't right. work. Right. And either it's going to survive or it's not going to survive. Like an urban, obviously is all about like basically robustness, durability, simplicity, like we're aiming to produce something that should be able to be, you know, evaluated. I don't know about like objectively, but everyone should be able to look at it and say like, okay, this is actually going to work well. Right. And so, yeah, I found that generally that as like, and I, yeah, coming from like an academic background where like critique and pretty like intense critique is a big part of how you make decisions and how you make things. I was like, this is good. Like we're right. I, I feel internally like pretty confident that we were like on the right track. Well, one of the reasons that I ask about that is just because I guess I kind of see Tlon as a successful case study in a way of navigating kind of the the current kind of cancel culture moment yeah. or whatever you want to yeah. call it. And now it's like you see, you know, CEOs like Brian Armstrong. And oh, yeah. there, it's yeah, now yeah. it's it's <laughs> now more common actually for especially companies in tech yeah. to kind of go at this more aggressively, more forthrightly, yeah. and basically try to get out in front of it. Yeah. In a way, you know, because Curtis was was so controversial for a time. I think less so now. Now he's, you know, seems to be on every podcast out there. And, and now it's like, <laughs> you know, he's he, I think he's doing well for himself, you know, as a thinker and 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 people are he, he seems like less, you know, stick nowadays, um, which is good for him, but you, you, you all got through that, you know, in, in a way and, and you kind of weathered the storm and Talon, you know, keeps on humming and it's, it's still, it's still doing its thing in a way. I kind of see the current wave of CEOs like Brian Armstrong getting out in front of it as kind of like, um, you know, it's, it, they can now do that in a way because companies like Talon kind of weathered the storm of these, of these waves of like public, you know, uh, cancel culture or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I have met Brian, <laughs> but I don't think we ever talked about any of this. So I can't, I don't know how, whether Talon can take any credit for that, but we definitely navigated this stuff like early on. Um, Are there any like lessons in there, like observations or uh, lessons that you had that probably could maybe benefit a lot of people who are maybe navigating their own companies with maybe a, a controversial, a uh, you know, person on, on, on the team. <laughs> that's such a good question. Well, I think is it in, for us specifically, like Urbit is definitely designed to be, and through, you know, continuous iteration aspires to be something that can support, you know, many, many different kinds of people who don't even necessarily like each other or want to acknowledge that one another exists. 
And so in general, you know, cultural conflict is, can be good and clarifying, like also like the things that you agree on basically. Right. So it's a good practice, I think, to be able to say, look, these are ways in which we are different. We're just going to like, actually we can, we can identify kind of like draw the lines around them and set them aside and figure out like what we actually want to share. So I think there's a lot of that actually, like even in the DNA of like how the, this country was set up and the, and sort of like framework that you try and generate to get a bunch of factions to coexist. And so I think in order to build systems like that, you have to kind of go through it, right? You have to be familiar with what that kind of conflict is and also then like how to, yeah, just like draw lines around it and kind of contain it. Not very good advice though. I mean, <laughs> I think like, I mean, what about just like the, the, the sheer will, like, I'm sure there were times there must've been moments where, you know, the, the kind of political pressure or anxiety on someone like you yeah, was yeah. so great that like, were there times where like you almost thought about throwing in the towel or like, I have to, I have to like do something drastic to handle this. Um, you know, how do you get through? Cause you held on, you held on. Right. And, and, yeah, and yeah. you know, it's like, you didn't, well, so we you didn't this- jump ship. So like wh- what kinds of heuristics or like ideas are, are you going through at that, at going through those kinds of uh, challenges? Yeah, it's it's so the thing that's really different, right, is that we went through all this stuff really early on, like when we didn't have a lot to lose. And I think I come from, you know, I don't know, it's like I grew up skating and like going to punk shows and stuff like that. And so I guess my kind of like. I'm pretty stubborn about. Like, I don't know how to. Like, we're going to make something that's really great or we're going to die, you know, and it's like. And so I think that that it came from all this, all this stuff going on. It seems scary or it seems worrisome in some way, but it's like, look, you know, that stuff really matters. Like all that matters is that this thing is actually as good as it should be. And we can figure out whether or not it matters. I love it. I'm Uh, getting the vibe that basically what you're saying is like, you just hang everything on the vision and the product. And it's like, if it wins, then you win. If it doesn't win, then you lose. And no drama about individuals is really going to matter either, either way. Yeah. Like all that stuff you're like, okay, is this, is this substantive to like, to what we're making? And so I think the big risk for us was like, you know, yeah, that we kind of like become the like right wing crypto project or something like which both interestingly like Curtis was probably more worried about than I was but we both are kind of like look this is not a niche product yeah. you know like this is supposed to be an open platform that lots of different people use in a very sort of serious way and I think we both just felt like yeah a lot of the stuff that was going on is like it's just like not material to what we're really doing and it's and in, <laughs> the thing that we would see a lot like actually I can't tell you how many times I would have people come to me at urban events and be like, oh, hey, I found out about you guys because of some great controversy. Right. And like, I'm not interested in Curtis at all, but I'm really excited about Urbit. And what I figured out was here because of like all this stuff that was going on. Um, and uh, yeah, I always kind of felt like maybe it's also gives me a fun, like I have a different perspective maybe on like why. Yeah, my feeling about like the problems of social media maybe partially influenced by this is that it's totally by design because it's like, it's so good for engagement. Like people love this stuff. Right. And if you get, it's like maybe, you know, medium versus the message thing, right? Like don't get caught up in the message. Like, I don't know if people care that much, you know, like they're not really, very few people are motivated around these things on either side, no matter what the issue is. Most people do not care. Um, And they, but what you should look at is like what people do, meaning what do they spend time on? What do they spend money on? And yeah, what I was finding is like people really like what we're working on and they want to help us and they want to, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, we should just keep going. You know? I think that's a really good, simple rule of thumb, basically, yeah, like, maybe it does like to get like to get through any kind of crazy 
public political drama of any kind. It's just like stay lightning focused on what you're building. And, and, and it is a good, cause it is a good point. It is actually like, it's, it's having a, having a controversial person on the team who's maybe, you know, drawing some kind of uh, political or public, you know, flack of some kind is really just a short term break or, or, or pressure in a way that just like public, like good press is also like a short term win, right? It's like, you know, there can be tailwinds or headwinds, but they're really just going to like help you or make it slightly difficult in the short term. They're really like you either have a, you either have something that is the truth and yeah. you win or you, or you don't have the truth and you lose. I do think that's ultimately true. I will say though, also like, you know, when a lot of this stuff would go down, like I take these people serious, like it's worth taking yeah. your detractors, you know, empathize with them, like understand what they're saying, try and understand them on their own terms. And I think there are plenty of things that Curtis gets dragged for that he like totally deserves to take <laughs> shit for, you yeah. know, like, uh, to the, to the, you know, to the degree of like, you know, taking away his livelihood or what, you know, yeah. it's like very extreme. Eh, right. Probably not. But right. sometimes I also think like the cool thing about you know, America or the West, like Western culture writ large, right? Is that we generally, you know, we want to tolerate people that are different than us and not just tolerate, like we're like, we like having lots of people around us who are different than us, right? And so I think that, yeah, even in those situations where someone is coming at you because they disagree with you, yeah, it's kind of part of the deal. Like, and it's interesting, like you learn things from totally. it and you should be open to learning from it too. I think it's like, you shouldn't just assume that if someone is, you know, coming after you for whatever it is that they like are you know, completely insane. I mean, they may very well be completely insane, but also maybe they have a point and it's interesting and you should like understand it. Regardless. Totally. Well, that, that's two things you and I have in common. We're both uh, skater kids who love, love America. That's what's <laughs> yeah. up. I'm yeah. Skateboarding it. is a real patriotic. Act, Hell yeah. That's super, yeah. super American. It's, it's also skateboarding is very anarchist and kind of, kind of like cypherpunk in a way, because you're constantly eluding yeah. control. You're constantly running from cops and you're basically, you have these, like, you have this like little yeah. gang where you're basically like your neighborhood and, and the highways are around like your suburb are like this kind of uh, wild west uh territory that yeah, you yeah. and your anarchist like cowboy buddies are just exploring and trying to evade capture so uh, uh it does, there's well, an I interesting vibe skate culture is like is is also competitive right in a really healthy way that totally. i think was that's one of the things that i think of as being the most like beneficial to me personally basically mm -hmm. i mean it it fosters a kind of like you are competing very much with yourself like you're trying to do things that are potentially gonna get you hurt or whatever you know right. like that are just hard to pull off and you're always competing with your friends at least a little bit right um and that culture but it's self-directed it's not like playing a team sport or something That's where right. there's like a measurable outcome it's self-directed and, and also there's never really like a final score yeah you know exactly. it's like that you know you're maybe like seeing who can do like the better kickflip or whatever yeah. but it's not like any anyone comes in at the end of the day and it's like you win you lose yeah, yeah. you're just kind of like constantly upping upping the ante right you know so yeah there's this internal you develop like an internal sense of what is good and what's not right. good and and like whether or not you can do something and so yeah i mean i like uh that was i mean you can see some of that in some of my thinking about stuff like this where i'm like yeah you, you need to have your own sense of like whether or not this is the right thing to do or whether or not you're being successful or whatever yeah. i love it yeah no it's totally true that skateboarding in, induces this kind of whole life ethic in a way it, <laughs> yeah, it, it's true. It, it really does breed people who basically kind of are, are inclined to go off on their own build something big because when you're learning a skateboard especially if you're passionate about it you know you're like spending like four hours in the street every day yeah. just like doing kickflips or whatever yeah you know trying to get that 360 flip down or whatever it's like hours and hours by yourself and you're basically just doing it because it's fun and because you want to achieve the capability and so it really breeds 
for that kind of patience and building in relative isolation over long periods of time, just yeah. for, just for the sake of it, basically. And it also comes, a, comes with a kind of, um, irreverence, a, a kind of disregard for authority because to do the sport, you have to ba- basically break rules all the time. Like you're constantly yeah. getting shooed away by security guards and stuff like that. So it's like to, to do it with your friends at all, uh, to go out and do it, you are basically anti-authoritarian and yeah. anti-rules. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's you know, all about you. you want it's to be very like internally. I think I think music can be like this too. I mean, surf culture has some of this. Like there, yeah. it's like spread around. Yeah. But yeah, like learning to be kind of, I think it's like you just have to learn to have your own sense of like your own sense of your own standards. And But I think like oh, yeah. a design education like is is similar in a way, right? Like we're, I mean, yeah, yeah. maybe so, like there is something about like you learn fundamentals and then you also learn to like figure out how you, your take on them and how to, and this kind of like productive tension between those things. Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, if I knew exactly what that, you know, like resume was, then right. that's exactly what I'd say we were hiring for. <laughs> okay. So what did you learn from, or rather tell us about who is Christopher Alexander and what was the what was the biggest lesson that you took from him? Good question. Um, well, I'm probably going to repeat myself here, uh, which is maybe okay. But sure. for those of you who've already heard me talk about, I don't think I know the spiel, so, uh, okay, so okay. go ahead. Don't be shy. Uh, okay, so the first caveat is that I'm actually not a total Christopher Alexander expert, like by any means. Okay. Um, I think what was relatively sort of mind blowing to me about Christopher Alexander coming from the sort of school of architecture and architects that I was trained in is that they're totally kind of diametrically exposed. I, or opposed. <laughs> opposed. Uh, I come from a kind of like a formalist postmodernist world um, that's like very New York centric. And Christopher Alexander, of course, is British and then ends up in California um, and has a very different take on kind of like what makes a successful building. So towards the end of my architecture education, I started reading his thesis, which is amazing. I think it's still worth reading. It's kind of like foundational if you want to understand uh, his thinking in general. What's the title of that one? Uh, Notes on the Synthesis of Form. Okay. Um, so he's a he has a math background. And so, yeah, I also have like was taking a lot. I took a lot of math classes well and sort of like uh, pure math, like algebraic topology and stuff like that, which I always found to be maybe I'm, I'm like interested in sort of. Uh, you know, understanding design from first principles and like what are, and like, how can you conceive of, uh, design principles in some very abstract sense? And actually pure math has a lot to offer there, right. In terms of thinking about, you know, how can we, uh, set up formal systems of how things can fit together. And so Alexander's thesis is kind of trying to join ideas that come from pure math with how do we think about sort of like the context within which you're going to make something and how that context weighs on its potential success on, you know, whether or not it works. You know, simple. It's just like, does the house make sense in the neighborhood kind of thing? Right. But it's a it's well reasoned and it's interesting sure. um, versus maybe the school that I came from, which is more like, is it beautiful by some, you know, pretty arbitrary measure? Uh, maybe that measure is within the culture that it's being measured or something. But I always found it pretty frustrating. I was kind of always fighting with the architecture faculty, uh, productively so. Um, but uh, yeah, I always found it like, how do you you know, locate what you're making within that tradition, especially I think towards the late 20th century when that tradition is starting to fracture and like not be totally cohesive. And so I think alternatively, Alexander like puts forward a very cohesive, um, like sort of, I guess, ideology. I don't really like the word ideology, (laughs) you know, um, framework Mm -hmm. for how you can think about, um, you know, basically like 
the success of a building or a network of buildings or city or neighborhood or whatever, like has to do with the quality of life that happens there. And so in some ways, not thinking about like, is this a beautiful object? But like, what is the felt effect of that object on the people who are there? And then if you can start to think about that felt effect, can you see that things potentially get linked together over long periods of history in ways that are kind of unexpected? And that there, there are like traditions of thinking about architecture that we don't actually, or like there are traditions present in architecture that we're not like thinking about as mm -hmm. architects. If, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that was very like, I think as a designer, um, it's easy to become a formalist, basically, like to only make things that are beautiful and to basically lose the thread of like, how is this impacting and like how is this shaping the world, basically? So yeah, I always felt like there was this distinction between sort of like professionalized, like capital A architects, like, you know, what proper noun, the people who practice architecture today, excuse me, versus like lowercase a architecture, like sort of the ancient practice of architecture, which I think of as like, you know, Actually, I had a professor used to say, like, the architect is the person when you're wandering around the desert who says, OK, we live here now. You know, like it's just that hmm. simple recognition of hmm. like this is the site or like this is what you know, here's how the houses are organized. That That's cool. It's, it's basically like the act of trying to organize culture. Right. Hmm. And I think that. Yeah, Alexander is kind of like the only person who's ever picked up that thread and, and does it in some ways in very formal ways in terms of how a house could be constructed to, you know, be the most harmonious or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, work the best as far as like uh, family life is concerned or something. He gets very specific in some cases, but uh, yeah, I always felt an affinity with his writing because it felt like someone who was thinking about architecture as this act of like shaping culture okay. out of like built form. Right. Very cool. Um, are there particular design details in Urbit that are, that, that kind of have Christopher Alexander's signature on them in a way? That's a good question. Not really. I mean, it's sort of built in the spirit though, right? Like, well, there, I know that there was at a certain point, a fork in the road for the development of Urbit where there was a kind of debate between going the API aggregation route versus the social oh, networking sure. route. Yeah. So it, it feels a little bit to me like Urbit did make a decision or Klon did make a decision at a certain point to go for the, the social aspect, the community aspect. Yeah. Is that in part a reflection of kind of what you're saying in this regard that you know, the architect has to basically yeah. foment culture and it's the quality of the culture that's fomented. That is yeah. the index of the architect's, you know, success or quality. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So that's a, I would have never drawn that connection. That split happened because I met someone. I think I gave a talk um, that was about when we were first starting to develop this, like, okay, maybe we should connect all the stuff that you already use. And someone took me aside after the talk and said, Hey, he's like a, he had been a very senior person at Google. He had left to start this thing and they'd been working on this thing um, for quite some time that basically did exactly that. He was like, hey, we've been building this thing. It's really far along. It's working reasonably well. And he like showed me a demo and we talked about it a lot. And he was basically like, you know, no one really cares about all that data. Like our problem is actually that we sign people up. It works. And I mean, it was a very impressive demo. And he was just like, the problem is that people don't want to connect all their services because the reality is they don't care that much about the data that's in those services. <laughs> and I was like, huh, that actually doesn't surprise me that much because I feel like 
maybe there's kind of like a total, there's like a myth that's been built around our attachment to sort of service-based media and communication that it's just like so much more important than it actually is. Like mm -hmm. maybe it shows that this is interesting and there's something here, but people like it could actually maybe all disappear tomorrow and like people wouldn't really care that much be just given the way that it's structured. So yeah, my intuition at that, my into actually the API thing was something that was not, I never felt fully I was like, I don't know about like, I had this lurking suspicion. It wasn't quite right. And then I had that conversation that made me think, okay, this is completely wrong because yeah, what you want to be building is something that feels more like somebody's home. Like they put energy into it. Like you would your own house that you think is going to last for a long time. And that is so much more valuable. But I think I also, even just from a tactical standpoint thought that's a niche, like that's a product, like there, people need that, like whether they realize it or not, like there's something to that, that basically we should build something self-contained, self-sustaining, that can kind of live on its own rather than trying to, I'm like the old world, I don't know, man, just, let's just let it go. It's fine. It doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Now, what is the Congo Gomi and what, oh, what yeah. did you, and what did you <laughs> learn and what a uh, Gumi is it? I think so. Right. Congo, I, yeah, I could matter, yeah. be totally wrong. And what did you learn from them? That's a good question. Uh, well, okay, so for context, for those, I don't know if you were talking about Congo Gumi. <laughs> yeah, context is good. Uh, Congo Gumi was the oldest company in the world uh, until um, not that long ago when they were bought. Uh, but you can Google it. It's an interesting story. Um, and let's see. I mean, I think the thing that's interesting to me, okay, so I've always looked at, um, like, process is interesting to me. So... Uh, it's probably more important how something is made and the, than the sort of systems that are working on, uh, you know, determining the conditions under which it is made. Um, that's probably more important than what people think is going on when they're making it, if that hmm. makes sense. Okay. Right. So um, for some reason, okay, this is a little, a uh, little woo woo or something, but you, I always thought this was really well captured in like solo wit, Right. So are you familiar with like solo whip painting? Solo whip was a, um, like a, an abstract artist in the seventies who um, a lot of his paintings are just instructions. So they're a set of instructions. It's like um, an entire, uh, you know, 15 foot by eight foot wall um, covered with lines, all pointing different directions, not touching. Okay. Um, and they're beautiful. Like the paintings are actually quite beautiful. I mean, it varies of course, but, but you know, there's pretty, um, some pretty good stuff in there and it's just the, but, when, what he sells, I'm pretty sure, is just the set of instructions. It's like here, and then he has a team that will install the painting. But what you buy is just the, like the algorithm. So anyway, I think when you think about, okay, you want there to exist a computing system. Like computers are promising. Seems good. Maybe we can do something with this network computing thing. Like it seems like it's a part of culture, um, and. We'd like to have networked computers that people can control because if they could control them and shape them themselves, you'd probably have a healthier, more productive, I don't know, like it would look different than it does today. Okay, well, part of the problem there is just the technical problem. So can you produce something of that nature? And it's a design problem maybe that's coupled to it, right? Can you also make it something that's easy to understand and easy to use? But you also need institutions to support that, right? Who can support the people who are making those things um, and have sort of some degree of sort of continuity or some ability to care for, like, and basically produce the situation in which, you know, this thing can actually get made. 
Uh, and so what's interesting to me about like longstanding institutions is just how do they work and how do you actually make something like that? I think that there's this very, like the default Silicon Valley way of thinking about these things in the whatever, I don't know, YC model, you know, the IPO model. Yeah. Like people don't think this way, really. They kind of do. No, it's like make it as it, fast but... as possible, make as much money as quickly as possible, basically. Yeah, well, so there's something to, I, I think there is something to get really big because getting really big does allow you to think about these things more right. concretely. So I don't, to be clear, I'm like, I'm actually probably more interested in getting big by way of doing something good. <laughs> Maybe it's the important caveat for me. Uh, and I do think once you are big, you can think about these things in a different way. But certainly in the back of my mind, I'm always kind of thinking like, well, I'm like, don't fuck it up, basically. Right. So you don't want to do things that would kill you, you know, because you, you there are always there are going to be a lot of ups and downs. This could be a very long project. You don't know exactly how it's going to pan out. Um, so it's important to look at these like fairly robust institutions, like what did they do? How did they work? Um, and how did they think about, yes, yeah, sort of like generational succession, like what's the culture of that company? How does that actually work? Um, those are hard problems that are not solved by that many U.S. companies, I don't think. Maybe Apple, you know, Apple's interesting in this way, actually, like it's very robust culturally, I think. I mean, there are plenty of problems with it, but it's it's pretty impressive, actually. Um, there are some other ones probably like in that are more kind of like industrial. I mean, Toy like Toyota, amazing. Right. Like, but it um, definitely seems true that very few companies have as their mission yeah. the idea of building like a thousand year long computer or something like right. that. Right. So, yeah. Well, so there, this is where it's always weird to me. Like they're, they're kind of like foundation type people, right? Who, who it was like long now. Right. Or something like that, right? Where they're like, oh, we have this express goal to be um, a long-term institution. I think that's great, but. You know, I think like making money isn't good because you're making money. It me it's indicative of the fact that people are paying you for what you're making. And so I think, yeah, there's something sort of different about being like a very long lived company, if if that makes sense, right? It's like yeah. a different challenge. Um, because it forces you to be constantly you're serving people, like you're making stuff for people. Like, and you know, the way that you know that you're making stuff that people like is that they're paying for it. Right. And you want that to be this ongoing relationship. So you can't like fall, you can't like, you know, uh, it's like Nintendo used to make card games, right? Right. Like, and if they were still making card games, they'd be dead. Now, one of the one of the reasons you don't see so many companies with such an explicit focus on building for the long term is probably because it's so hard, right? Um, all the incentives seem to push people in the direction of of shorter term horizons. So that's why I was asking you about the Congo Gumi or any other similar uh, ventures in the past that maybe you've learned from. Like, I wonder, are there patterns or or, oh, yeah, or ingredients or principles that you've noticed are are required or valuable for building this kind of really long, long time horizon company? Yeah. So you did mention one, which we could unpack if you want to, like you said something to the effect of Maybe you could recall what you said, but it was something like uh, looking at the conditions under which good things are built rather than something oh, right. else. Yeah. Like, are you? Well, yes. I sort of think like great companies kind of like serve serve the people broadly by being able to understand to kind of like create territory that people want to inhabit, right? Like. That's what creating new products or new technology generally is um, in like a very, you know, it's, it's kind of vague, but I think it's pretty clear. So um, 
it's maybe important to point out that like, you know, Amazon doesn't really invent new technology, right? They mostly reuse existing technology to provide a service to the customer. It's a very different category of work to invent from scratch new technology. That's just a totally different thing. Most people don't do that. And I think that part of doing that, yeah, has to do with this almost like you have to be in touch with the zeitgeist or the way that people think and the conditions of the world in a very, you have to be like very sensitive to those things basically and start from your intuition of like what's going on in the world and where could the world go basically. And you, as I was saying, you know, it's sort of like in that sense of the architect being like, hey, here's where we're going to set up camp or whatever. Um, it's sort of, you're doing that like over and over. Um, and so I think that's a categorically different thing. Um, in general, then like what we look at is like technology companies are not technology companies, meaning they don't invent technology. They just reuse technology. Mm. So how many technology companies are there and and like what was their history like? So maybe that's what I'm always interested in. So Congo Gumi was a construction company for a long time. And actually they thrived originally because there was a boom in the creation of um, like Zen Monastery, when Zen really took off in Japan, people wanted to build in a very particular way. And they were there to like service that demand and, and build in this very specific fashion. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a good, that's potentially like a, a really, a, you know, it's a good example of what I'm talking about, right? You're kind of like right there at the edge of what people want. And you're like inventing the way to service it with like literally new techniques, like new construction techniques, new ways of building, new ways of, of like providing something. Right. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, I'm not saying we figured that out, but I think that's like, maybe it's just a personal interest in a way. I'm like, I don't know. That's what I'm good at. I'm not going to do well, anything else. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it sounds to me like you think very much in terms of not like building a thing and giving people the thing, but kind of gardening these environmental conditions in which other people will build things or many people can build yeah. things or where people want to live is something you said well, before. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So that's, I mean, I'm thinking about this in terms of how do we create the conditions like at Tlon that people can basically make good products. But at the end of the day, we do want to be able to ship things that people, you know, pick up and think, Oh, this is really nice to use. And I want to use it without even thinking about it. Like right. I just take the act of using it. You know, I, I just do this because it's nice. Um, and I think, I mean, that's the thing probably that like I get the most excited about is when people are just like, Oh, I like using this thing because it's sort of obvious. I don't even think about it. Right. Um, that's hard to do, though. You know. Of course, of course. And I mean, when you look at Urbit, obviously, it's been all these years of basically just yeah. architecting and building these conditions, basically for yeah. networked computing to happen. Yeah. And we're at a, we're at an exciting time now because there is kind of more adoption. There's more stuff to do. There's more people kind of talking about it, getting on the network, which I'm sure is very exciting for you. But for most of your history, you know, uh, contributing yeah. to Urbit, it's really been kind of a, creating this um, contextual architecture that one day hopefully people will yeah. be able be wa be able to do things in and want to live in. Yeah, it's just baby steps, right? So like I think that's. Um, you know, one of the things actually, I just think we're generally good, actually pretty good at now. Um, we're getting better at, we'll still get, we'll be getting better at this forever. But um, one of the biggest challenges with inventing new things in general, right, is like not trying to do too much in any one step or getting, you know, confusing your kind of long-term vision with like what you can produce in the next, you know, one, two, three, six months, whatever. Um, so you know, some of the like really, I remember some of the early Urbit demos that I was like the most excited about. Uh, 
that I knew there were probably 10 other people who also found really exciting because they actually understood what was going on. But for most people, they were just like, who cares? (laughs) Um, And I think a lot of those, I remember a demo of like, you know, we can update a scoreboard on two web browsers like simultaneously. But the fact that that was actually getting like computed down to knock and moving over the wire and like people who are engaged in just engage with this stuff technically, you know, it, it was actually, you know, quite, quite compelling in exactly the way I'm talking about, right? It's like where you'd show this to, a, you know, a seasoned engineer or someone who's concerned with this type of technology. And they're like, holy shit, like, that's fucking wild. Like, um, so you just have to, you know, make sure you're not, if you're, if at that stage, I was like, oh man, I wish there were, you know, a million people using Urbit. I mean, it's pretty disappointing. Um, right. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't have been. So very good. at this very moment, we're, at an interesting point with Urbit because what just released is software distribution. So now it's now yeah. it's now possible for people to basically build apps on Urbit yeah. and then share them with other people on the network so other people can download your app and use it. And of course, you know, uh, for people who don't know much about Urbit, you can you know certainly find better primers elsewhere. But the the basic logic is that this is this is peer to peer networked computing. So basically, anything you can do with like a normal computer now on Urbit theoretically we can build software that allows people to do that in a way that's interconnected network. So basically any kind of network logic, any network app that we have, like social media, you name it, can now be done potentially peer to peer with complete privacy on this like completely different internet. So I'm curious to know now that software distribution is here, what what are you most excited about in terms of in terms of the near future of apps in particular? Like what kinds of what kinds of patterns do you expect to see in 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 the shorter term? of, of the, the, the first wave of apps to be built and shared and actually distributed and used uh, across Urbit? Yeah, it's a good question. My, the reality is I actually don't, what I'm excited about is that you can actually in earnest ask people to do this, right? <laughs> and because the exciting part of building, you know, actual open-ended stuff like, like software distribution and the frameworks for it, which admittedly still do need a lot of work, um, the whole point is that they're like, people are going to come up with stuff that we can't think of basically. Um, that's the honest answer. It's like, I think what's most exciting to me is that now you have this like surface area of stuff that right. people can go after that, that I don't even, uh, I mean, my, my area of focus in some ways with what we're doing now is, is actually pretty narrow. Like I'm probably more interested in, um, I guess I'm excited about it. I mean, like, I think the thing that I feel like super motivated for us to work on, uh, that I think, and, and I mean us by like Talon. So Urbit as a community will go, I think it now has the ability to kind of like go off and become more of an ecosystem where there's all of this like unknown stuff going on. The thing is that for people to actually get access to that ecosystem and to sort of feed it by way of like communities coming on board to the network you still need like much, much better onboarding that is easy and cross-platform. You need much, much better frameworks for developers. Like there's all this like baseline stuff of right. just making this available. And it's a funny situation because for me, even like a year ago, even like 18 months ago, like early landscape, I think it's a weird thing where you're like, this is a pretty good, I remember thinking like, okay, this is pretty good. Like as a product that doesn't kind of like isn't annoying basically like i find basically all cloud software to be incredibly annoying like even if you're paying for it it's like just has this pathetic what's the biggest annoyance what's the most endemic annoying feature of just of like, software do services you, do you want to turn notifications on <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. i'm just like no and like i never want to have to 
install another app ever again. Right. Uh, uh, or like on my phone. Um, so anyway, I think like I could see just that the quality of, hey, you can use this thing and it's never going to like fuck with you. You know, like it's not it's just not an um, sort of there's nothing pathetic about it. Like it does exactly what it says it's going to do. It can last an incredibly long time. It belongs to you. And people have tried this angle with software before, but it's always actually kind of not true because it's not run, it's just not actually they haven't like sort of realized the whole technical vision. And so for me, yeah, the most motivating thing since I had this sense of like, okay, I think this is pretty good. And, and you could see it be validated, you know, pretty continuously by other people having that same, not in huge, huge numbers, but in an, I mean, mostly because it's so fucking hard to get on and use this thing. And right. so, yeah, the most, the thing I'm just like the most, I want to be able to like text someone an invitation, have them sign up, you know, have the whole flow happen you know, conveniently and seamlessly um, without them really thinking about it. And I sort of feel like with the software distribution stuff, I'm like, people are excited to explore this space, which is, I mean, very encouraging to me. And I'm curious to see what they will do. I almost like don't want to influence them. I'm like, I'm just okay. excited to see what happens. Gotcha. Like, I think that's like, well, so like one hypothesis would be, should we expect a, a lineup of Urbit basics? I think someone in a previous interview used that term. Yeah. yeah. So like, there's going to, is there going to be like an Urbit you know, Google Docs, uh, there's going to be an yeah. Urbit, uh, Excel, there's going to be, yeah, yeah. like, is this, okay, this is a this, good question. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm always, I get mixed up. So I it should, in a way, back up and like, I think in terms of like, almost like the next quarter or two quarters, like that I can like, we plan very concretely about like, what are we going to do in the next three months? What are we going to do in the next six months? Beyond that, we actually like, just don't plan. We know where we're going in the next maybe three to five years, roughly, but don't, and, and talk about that. And that kind of sets your like general direction. Um, you know, the reason I'm always talking about, uh, I don't skate anymore, but I do. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, you can't as you get, skate. As you get older, it hurts so bad. The it's, fall hurts so bad. I have a lot of respect for people who still just skate. It's Dude, amazing, I used to like fall off roofs and stuff like crazy. And I was just like made of rubber back then. It's yeah, crazy how yeah. your body changes. I, yeah. Uh, so it's sad. It's R also, R it's just skating. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll still like roll around, but uh, yeah, I can't, yeah. can't do it. But um, I think that, yeah, Urbit at this point has this, um, I spend a lot of time like out in the woods on my bike on just, you know, hiking, whatever, backcountry skiing, stuff like that. And I think of it a lot, like, especially actually when you're, you're out in the snow, you're like, okay, I need to get up there. And if you're in the snow, the cool thing about being in the snow, right. Is you can kind of just go anywhere. You, there's not like, you don't need to be on a trail. Um, and so you can see as far as you, you know, like through the trees to a certain extent, and you can see probably the peak you're trying to get to, but like the in between, like, you're like, well, I think there's a cooler over there, you know, like kind of, but not really. I mean, it's a lot like that. Right. Um, so I think that I'm talking very much about like next three to six months, I have like this fixation on just like make the barrier to entry, like true, you know, software distribution was a huge effort. It was an important thing for us to get out, but I like really want that to come down. Um, yeah, the sort of digital basics uh, thing, which we'll talk about actually this weekend quite a lot, um, is a very, these two things are complementary. So one way to think about it, to draw back to stuff I've been saying now, yeah, for a really long time is like uh, WeChat, Line, Kakao Talk in the East, you have these like super apps where I can send you a message, I can send you a payment, we can book dinner, we can pay for dinner together, I can write right. a blog post, I can I need to do everything in a single unified UI. It looks amazing. I mean, I've only used these things by talking to other people and having them yeah. use them and show them to me, but it's pretty cool. Also, still centralized, uh, has all the downsides of centralization, 
but you can see like, oh, this is kind of like a networked computer with a real operating system. And so Urbit now has the basic pieces in place to get to that, but like it's a real actual operating system, meaning like you can install whatever you want on it. It actually belongs to you. Yeah, it's in fact peer-to-peer. Um, and so I think that vision of like, sure, yeah, you have these this very rudimentary set of digital basics, very much in the spirit of like a Muji type of Muji computing. Sure, you need documents, you need messaging, you need payments, I need a way to manage my bank account, I need a way to manage all the sensors in my house. I need, you know, sure, look at all the things that you're already using. You're using them productively, like they are useful, but what if you could just get rid of like sort of all of the bullshit and have them feel like they are totally durable and, and you know, they belong to you completely and simplify them enormously. Uh, I think that's, yeah, that's kind of like where we're headed. You look at like, it's like, it's a Western WeChat, but that doesn't have the sort of poisonous, you know, side of it, meaning like there's no centralization. Involved. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, I, I, I think that's a really great way to summarize it. How do you think about the future of businesses being built on Urbit? We talked yeah. earlier today with Christian yeah. and Logan uh, of the Terrell Corp. And they're, to my knowledge, one of the first, you know, ambitious startups, yeah. proper startups being built on Urbit. Yeah. Do you expect to see a wave of other startups like that? Yeah. Maybe not for a while. And if so, um, what what types of opportunities do you think are the yeah. most promising or exciting? Like if there's an investor listening to this or uh, an engineer or potential founder, yeah. like what's What's the prime territory in your view yeah. for, for the near future of building startups on Urbit? Uh, there's, well, it sort of depends on your level of ambition. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's funny. I thought you were going to ask this in a different context of like, because Terrell, I think of as building tools for people to build businesses on Urbit, like okay, businesses sure. like your own, right? Like, sure. meaning like supporting individual creators or kind yeah. of like, um, you know, individual businesses of which I think it could be very creator based or it could be that I make something and I sell it over Urbit in interesting ways. Right. Um, and I think there's a, there's a lot there and I think that, yeah, I think Terrell, I don't know if they fully sort of corner that market, but like, uh, they, they're, they're definitely, they have a long road ahead of, of stuff. I mean, I guess one question would be, do you see like boutique app developers being profitable yeah. anytime soon? Or is that a mod, is that the wrong way to think about software, the software economy on Urbit? I think that you could have, you'll eventually get there. I think that people will probably, um, uh, figure out how to get there. Although I had a conversation the other day that almost convinced me otherwise. So Building software is fun. I mean, it really is genuinely fun. I think most people build software at first because it's fun. Um, and we live, especially in the world of crypto, uh, in this, I don't know, people I feel like sometimes think too much about the incentives, right? It's like, okay, well, how are people going to make money? They have to make money. Okay, I agree they have to make money. Um, I think people are initially motivated by just wanting to do stuff that is really cool. I think Urbit makes it easy for you to do stuff that is cool because you're shipping software. You're not doing DevOps. You're just making something and sending it to your friends. They get to run it. Then if you're doing that either by doing a grant or because some large address space holder is paying you in ownership of the network, you kind of like are now a co-owner, right? So it's like you're a Windows developer, it's 1995, and like by shipping whatever accounting software, you actually just own a piece of the operating system itself. Um, and, you know, the thesis on Urbit value is always that, like, as Urbit gets more usable, it gets more value. I mean, it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Why would I pay for a planet? Why would I pay to pay a star to route packets for me, whatever? Um, that boils down to, like, what do I get to do with this thing? So I think there's potentially this, like, really nice feedback loop between people contributing software to the network, 
us and other large address space holders trying to give, you know, give people shared ownership in the network as a whole um, as a means of, yeah, like basically sort of keeping them inspired, but also keeping them out of having to run a software business, which meant much of which sucks. Um, you want to be able to see people doing this um, basically for fun. Uh, so, you know, I, but look, the reality is we don't know. And sure. I think the, the, you can look at, you know, what's happened like in the Ethereum ecosystem and to some extent in the Bitcoin ecosystem. So I think there's big opportunities for people to run services on Urbit in general. So whether that's like hosting services, whether that's like off Urbit compute or storage services, whether that's, uh, yeah, payment services or calling out to the outside world. So what Terrell is doing with um, credit card companies is interesting or like with credit, being able to like run, you know, connect to regular dollars, but also just banking, right? I would love to be able to have a way that I interface with a bank over Urbit itself or by calling out or authenticating with Urbit. Um, and so that's where in the same way that there's like, you know, there are Bitcoin exchanges, Bitcoin services companies, but like, do people really build apps for Bitcoin? Not really, maybe more so in the Ethereum ecosystem. So does, and in many cases, those apps are just for fun. Like people are just kind of putting them out there and maybe they sort of try and they mint something with them. Maybe they have some shared ownership over something, but they're not trying to build like a Coinbase or a BitGo or a whatever. Um, so I think there's only if there will be a few larger services companies and some of people have started some of those already or there seem to be getting off the ground. And I mean, who knows which ones will be really successful. Uh, but I do think for a while, like software development and distribution will be out of, I think building software for Urban is just so much easier and more fun than we're used to that people will do it out of the joy of doing it. It's just so much easier than you would any, it's nothing like, you know, traditional software development. Let's fast forward, say a hundred years. It's, <laughs> it's 2121. I'm frozen in some. <laughs> How many people are using Urbit? How are they using Urbit? Yeah, in what ways? What do you see on that kind of time horizon? Yeah. So how has, how has Urbit penetrated the world? Um, <laughs> uh, I think that, um, the, Best thing to compare Urbit to in some, well, in some ways, not in other ways, is probably just Unix or Linux, right? So, you know, almost every app or service that you use runs on top of a Unix machine somewhere. Pretty much the internet is not the internet. It's really like the internet plus like internet protocol suite plus Unix. Mm -hmm. um, and you would hope that Urbit as a, um, as a, piece of technology or as a platform, yeah, it becomes this like totally invisible, ubiquitous layer of basically like networked compute. Um, so if you want to talk about the kind of like, you know, Neil Stevenson, you know, nanobots and whatever, a completely and totally connected world uh, that is maybe somehow not as dystopian as those as those novels are, um, you know, or maybe more optimistically, like you look at like Brett Victor, like seeing spaces type of stuff. Um, yeah, the missing piece for all that stuff is something like Urbit. But for most people, um, Urbit is inv completely invisible. It's not important. Like it's as important. I mean, maybe how many people know what Unix is? I mean, some people right. kind of, it doesn't matter, you know? Mm -hmm. And the way that you enter into using that thing is probably through something else. Um, I mean, sure, it's a little bit different because in our case, you like own an identity. But I mean, even that, it's not important that it's like Urbit branded, right? I mean, Urbit is meant to disappear like in and become this kind of like fabric of computing. Yeah. Um, it's designed that way. I think it's, we're on track. It's a long project. Sure, <laughs> yeah. sure. Uh, 
Will there be urban hardware or maybe not? Um, probably. It's very unclear how long that would take. Um, you can look at, um, you know, a simple way to think about it is that we have moved, we, we sort of tend to move towards special purpose compute hardware, right? Um, and, you know, crypto networks have really proven this out. Um, and so if Urbit is extremely, you know, widely used, and so you have entire data centers that are dedicated to hosting Urbits for people, um, excuse me, it's uh, obviously going to be, you know, more efficient if you can run that on metal that is well suited to running Urbit. Uh, I say obvious um, probably more emphatically than I should. Maybe maybe it's easier to run it on a hypervisor of some kind or it's still running on Unix somewhere. Uh, the point of Urbit's design is similar to the way, of course, like you ran the internet over analog wires and then eventually you replaced all with fiber. It's like, do we need to replace it all with knock chips? I don't know, maybe, like, uh, could do. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, should you have, like, Urbit, do I want, like, an Urbit phone, which may actually be running Android under the hood, but is only able to, you know, boots yeah. into an Urbit interface? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, um, yeah. people will do that, like, for sure. Uh, people have already experimented with that. Are there people doing that? Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, it's not even that. Someone, I think Anthony for a while had like an e-ink phone. You can buy this kind of, it's not a super high quality piece of hardware, but it's decent e-ink phone that would boot directly into and just like only show you landscape. And it's pretty amazing. Like it's pretty nice. That's um, cool. Yeah, yeah. If there are people floating around this weekend who have cool little hack jobs or rigs that I, I'd love, I'd like to see. I mean, all the, there's so much like enthusiasm with Raspberry, this sort of like Raspberry Pi contingent, right. you know, these guys right. running all kinds of crazy stuff on little Raspberry Pis running. Yeah. Urban. I'd love, to, I'd love to learn more about what people are building. It's really interesting. So something I've been enjoying asking people is maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the most interesting stuff you found or people you've met or just like what's some of the cool stuff you've ever encountered on, on the urban network. A long time ago, it's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, there was someone who built an entire, uh, like, um, mud. So like a multi-user dungeon style game. Okay. Um, meaning it's like a text-based adventure game. Um, it doesn't sound fun, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not super into text-based adventures. Some people love them. They are interesting. A single dungeon sounds bad enough, but multi-dungeons, <laughs> that just sounds like uh, no, no, some kind of torture it's a, game. It's a throwback to like um, early days of network computing. So you didn't, uh, like it's a terminal game where, you know, it says like, hey, you're in a dark room. You can either go north, south, east, or west, you know, and or you okay. can like look around. You can like run commands and it tells gotcha. you where you are, right? But a multi-user dungeon, so first they would have these text-based adventure games, but a multi-user one meant that you could actually talk to the, if you encountered other people, meaning if you were in the same room, you could talk to them. Mm -hmm. So there was someone who years ago actually went and implemented an entire MUD in for Urbit. And I'd never talked to this person before and they showed up in Urbit and then were like, hey, run, install this from my Urbit, like before software distribution exists. So kind of hacked a version of software distribution together. Wow. And was like, run this and you know, I'll talk to you there, basically. And a few of us ended up like inside of this text-based adventure game where we were talking with someone who we, you know, never, never met before uh, inside of a world that they had kind of created. Uh, so that was, a, that's a, anyway, I always loved that one. That was just- That's like, fascinating. Yeah, it's wild and great. And this is someone who then actually ended up working with us for a long time and nice. uh, is a, is a, is a great supporter of the project and, and someone I like a lot. But that's like, that's basically how I met him, um, which is kind of cool. This is like, there's so many. I, I bet. Mean, like, yeah. That's a good one. Though. That's Urban, a good Urban one. attracts incredibly interesting and strange people. Like that's my experience. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. So 
this has been really fun. We covered a lot of ground. I mean, I think I think that's that's more than enough for now. I'll be talking with you, I'm sure, more throughout the weekend. Uh, yeah, Talon is just a very fascinating company. It's a, it's a truly unique company in Silicon Valley. I think it's like it's the only company I've ever encountered where you ask, you know, some of the some of the leading people working for it, you know, what they're trying to do, and you get like the most interesting answers that you you don't hear from other you know technology <laughs> companies. You know, it's like uh, talking to Ed. You know, he, he'll say something like, you know, his his goal is to to make computers beautiful or something, and like you're like, yeah, I want to make a thousand year computer or something. It's like. It, not many people in Silicon Valley are like building companies that have these very, it, I guess it's, it is, it, it is a company that is built by designers in a way it has that mark on it because it's like, you're really thinking about what is beautiful, what, uh, you know, should exist. What, what is the, the principled way of doing things? That's what I, I feel like the vibe is at Talon. And I think it shows, and I think it's, it's unique and really cool. Thanks. I think one, I think, you know, maybe to like the way you're making me realize the way I think about this is like, People love Tierra Incognita, right? Everyone wants to look like under, like go to sort of the edge of what is possible and explore new territory. And I do think that like Tlon is a company that's very much like Urbit as a thing, right? Is sort of saying, look, the internet is hosed. This territory isn't interesting anyway. We're just going to create an entirely new territory that we think has like rules that actually make sense. And we're going to let people explore it and develop it. Um, and so I think we think of our our job is basically to kind of like create that territory make sure it makes sense, make sure that people can explore it. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's, and, and that's both fun, like for us. And the idea is to make it fun for other people too. So I do think it's generally like, a, I don't know, sort of feels like a positive feedback loop. Hell yeah. Part. Yeah. Awesome, dude. Well, thanks for sharing your time with us today. And is there anywhere you want to send people? Uh, I think you mentioned before you're hiring anything else you want to tell people about. Yeah. We're always looking for people. What are you looking uh, for in particular, other than skilled engineers, obviously. You know, I've, I still haven't, well, we, we're always, we have, you can look at our careers page. So there are specific people that we're hiring for, but my experience is that, uh, you know, it's sort of like, if you're feel very inspired by what we're doing and you're really, really interested in it, we generally hire people who contribute. Um, and so if you're sort of interested in urban and feel like you want to participate, please do. And, you know, reach out to us and we're pretty easy to find and, and like talking to people. Right on. And other than hiring, any other calls to action or you want to send people in? I feel like else? your listeners know, like what usually I'm like, just go to urban.org <laughs> yeah, yeah. or like, uh, no, not really get it. Yeah. Come check, you know, I mean, if you're not on the network, it's pretty easy to get on and you should check it out and, and, and see yep. what's going on. I have my own little on-ramp. So I'll put links, links in the show notes yeah, for people yeah. to get on the network yeah, and follow your learn on-ramp. more. Yeah. yeah, yeah you're, so. you're helping make that easier. You're, you're working on the thing that I'm the most frustrated by. So that's good. Oh, right on. That. Right. Which is getting people on, making <laughs> yeah. it easier to get people on. Yeah. yeah, totally. Well, I've enjoyed my time on there. It's a really interesting, it's a really interesting little system and I like how simple it is. And yeah, I'm, I'm down with the mission, as you know. So I'm, I'd, I'd Thanks, love to man. see it succeed, and I'm happy to throw my weight behind it. So it's been fun. Well, yeah, I'm glad we got to talk. It's been, I mean, we haven't, I don't think we've done this before. So nope. yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Galen. Appreciate it. Yeah, sure. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks, man. That's great. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end. So you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review, and it'll send you an Apple podcast. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show. And I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening. And thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.